Dirty Moderates, uh, end of June is always the uh, announcement of the major Supreme Court cases uh, that the court had been reviewing from the previous October. And so they order officially today the end of affirmative action in America. That is today's episode. Now, I'm going to nuance today's episode because it's very important on an issue this complex that we have nuance. Um, conversations relating to race, racial preferences, and anything uh, about discrimination in our society um, tends to be so fraught and um, tends to generate uh, more um, more uh, heat, you might say, than it does light. And so I want to weigh in here, but I do have to weigh in because affirmative action has been an issue which I've been long torn about, if I'm honest, um, for a lot of reasons. Uh, but first, uh, the opinion uh, was a 6-3 opinion. Um, it was a, a case that uh, was brought against Harvard and the University of North Carolina. And the decision, which relates to private and public uh, universities, strikes down race-conscious admission programs. It's a 6-3 vote. Um, so the usual suspects are in the majority. This court, by the way, has done a lot of surprising things on the independent legislature theory and tribal sovereignty. Um, it's been a very interesting year. So even the same court that uh, did the dastardly deed of Dobbs overturning Roe has done, I think, more nuanced and thoughtful work this year. Um, it just shows you you can be surprised as much as you can be outraged. Um, when it comes to the court, um, the six uh, justices and the majority, the six justices found that the universities discriminated against white and Asian American applicants by using race conscious policies that benefited applicants from underrepresented backgrounds. Uh, John Roberts, Chief Justice, wrote the majority opinion, the quote, eliminating racial discrimination means eliminating all of it. Um, the decision undercuts a longstanding admissions policy uh, blueprint at elite colleges and universities is use, that use race as one of many factors in evaluating their applicants. Those policies had relied on prior Supreme Court cases that permitted the use of race as what was called holistic admissions, in quotes, in the sense that, you know, obviously grades and personal statements and teacher recommendations and, well, in the past, test scores, which are getting less and less relevant, race would be part of that, um, that stew um, in order to promote diversity. And Thursday's ruling appears to find most of those programs unlawful. Uh, of course, uh, civil rights groups and many educational groups are howling in protest and very upset, saying this is going to exacerbate inequality uh, for the years to come. It's been hard enough, they say, to um, diversify public institutions, especially um, among black and Latino kids uh, uh, who, have, who have not had the same access. Um, but Going back 40 years, the Supreme Court has upheld there has been a limited use of affirmative action to promote diversity anyway. This is very important. Um, John Roberts and this court stopped short of overruling all those precedents. Just to be clear, they did not overrule them. But he it did render in both the spirit and letter of the law past decisions kind of dead, really. Uh, Justice Thomas, uh, who joined in Robert's opinion, and Justice Sonia Sotomayor, who dissented. She was one of the three. That's Justice Sotomayor, uh, Elena Kagan, and Justice uh, Katanji Brown-Jackson. They wrote in separate opinions that Thursday's decision was essentially overturning these opinions without saying so. I know the law is complicated. So though they don't explicitly say, hey, like Dobbs did, we're overturning Roe. 
um, they are in essence overturning past decisions. Um, but Roberts wrote something very important that I think bedevils proponents of affirmative action when they're asked to defend it, and certainly something I am sympathetic to. He wrote, the Harvard and UNC admissions programs cannot be reconciled with the guarantees of the Equal Protection Clause. Okay, He's referring to a provision of the 14th Amendment that bars the government from discriminating on the basis of race. He goes on, Roberts does, quote, both programs lack sufficiently focused and measurable objectives warranting the use of race, unavoidably employ race in a negative manner, involve racial stereotyping, and lack meaningful endpoints. We have never permitted admissions programs to work in that way, and we will not do so today, end quote. Roberts did stress in his ruling, though, that the court was not entirely, okay, and this is important in our lack of nuanced society and our binary and our hard right, hard left, fault-lined society. He emphasized the court was not entirely prohibiting schools from taking account of applicants' experiences related to race as long as such factors aren't a subterfuge for explicitly using race, okay? He writes, quote, nothing in this opinion should be construed as prohibiting universities from considering an applicant's decision of how race affected his or her life, be it through discrimination, inspiration, or otherwise. Roberts continues, but despite the dissent's assertion to the contrary, universities may not simply establish through application essays or other means the regime we hold unlawful today. Um, uh, Jackson and Kagan and um, Sotomayor, of course, had some very choice words, slashing dissents, you may say. Sotomayor said, today this court stands in the way and rolls back decades of precedent and momentous progress. It holds that race can no longer be used in a limited way in college admissions to achieve such critical benefits. In so holding, she wrote, the court cements a superficial rule of colorblindness as a constitutional principle in an endemically segregated society where race has always mattered and continues to matter. Okay, now, there is... This is complicated because remember what went on here, okay, and how Harvard and the University of North Carolina, you might say, hurt themselves, okay? Harvard was uh, a defendant and University of North Carolina was a defendant, okay? Now, Asian Americans in America are also historically marginalized, okay? They were the group represented by Students for Fair Admission who had sued Harvard for discrimination against them in the admissions process, okay? Clarence Thomas notes, Asian Americans can hardly be described as the beneficiaries of historical racial advantages. There is no American population, folks, and this is where the rub is for me, that should face any discrimination based on race. It is unjust and awful the way our system of generational inequality has been allowed to persist. It is unjust and awful the way racism is systemically baked in society. It's unjust and it's awful that we have not had a proper reckoning to remedy racial injustice of the past. But I, I'd like to tell you today, I don't think affirmative action is the way to do it. Not as it's been practiced. Okay. Asians, for example, in this instance have been unfairly targeted and they too have faced Horrible um, exclusionary rules if they were Chinese, um, unfair labor practices when they built the railroads. Japanese people were interned because of World War II in government camps. Um, lots of strict immigration laws and codes prohibited them from entering American life. Harvard specifically rejected alternative race-blind formulas, for example, that could have achieved similar diversity. Um 
I mean, they didn't have to use the practice whereby admissions officers at Harvard um, were accused of looking at Asian applicants and scoring them lower on personality tests. That's right. Scoring them lower. Okay. So higher Asians have higher grades and higher scores than the majority of the population. That's the data. Okay. And this, um, and Harvard was using their personality scores, which is very important part of the, of the admissions process to say, not funny, too rigid, you know, too serious, um, no charm, all sorts of things, you know, that, that reek of a kind of stereotyping of Asian American character and yet admitting black and Latino students with far less academic qualifications for this, for the, for the sake of remedying past underrepresentation. Okay. Um, weirdly enough, they've been perpetuating a system that doesn't allow for remedying all racial justice, just some. Okay. So, I mean, Neil, Dors Neil Gorsuch wrote that the advantages that, the, that Harvard was using, okay, for example, undoubtedly benefit white and wealthy applicants the most and perpetuate a system in which Harvard both favored certain classes of predominantly white applicants and discriminated against Asians. Hard to defend this. Hard to defend it, right? So lesser qualified people, white, black, and brown, were getting admitted over more qualified Asians because they've been overrepresented. Or they want to correct that there's so many Asians, so they were used. They can't get them on test scores and grades, but they went after them on character, personality. Like literally playing into the worst stereotypes of what people think an Asian teenager is no more than their violin and their math class. Good God. Where does this leave the law? The top answer or the top main answer is simple, but the consequences are very complicated. The court has struck down the use of race as a factor, but it left in place a lot of alternative admissions measures that can increase diversity and, and, and address injustice. First of all, let me say this affirmative action. I wish was based on socioeconomics and class. It would address poverty inequities and wealth and also would benefit the data shows more kids of color because affirmative action benefits no matter what race you are upper income people middle to upper income people it does not benefit disproportionately the working poor the lower classes those who've been impoverished okay um Justice Thomas provided some examples of this. If an applicant, quote, has less financial means because of generational inheritance or otherwise, then surely a university can take that into account. If an applicant has medical struggles or a family member with medical concerns, a university may consider that too. Okay. Again, these are all individualized determinations, but those individualized determinations also have systemic effects. Kataji Brown Jackson's dissent eloquently argued, said this, quote, Gulf size race-based gaps exist with respect to the health, wealth, and well-being of American citizens. They were created in the distant past, but have indisputably been passed down to the present day through the generations, end quote. She's right, except you can, you can actually address those gaps better, those big Gulf size race gaps with race-neutral policies that deal with poverty, wealth, income, in some instances, health or other circumstances. In other words, because of past injustice, race-neutral policies can have race-disproportionate outcomes without overtly discriminating by race. To treat every economically disadvantaged kid the same, regardless of race, would get systemic change. You'd have 
black and Latino youth benefiting disproportionately, and they should, and you'd have accounts, you'd have real, real fairness. Moreover, by preserving the ability to consider these specific accounts of racial discrimination, schools now have the ability to provide advantages to people who've confronted con concrete acts of racial injustice. You know, if somebody is socioeconomically disadvantaged and they say they've been kept out of opportunity because of that, race is a part of it, but so is economy, so is poverty. And if you take poverty into account, you achieve the same outcome without saying, well, we are just going to accept you because you are, um, because you're Mexican American, or we're just going to accept you because you're African American. I know it's complicated. Remember when quotas were in place and quotas are not allowed under law, but when they were in place, they kept Jews out of Ivy League schools for years to keep it white. You know, all of this stuff reverberates through American law. Okay, you can't have good racial discrimination and bad racial discrimination. Definitionally, if you are discriminating, if you are remedying by race, you are discriminating by race. That's where I have, I, I just wrestle with it because I do think we have so many wrongs to right. But has this been the right way? Don't forget when, when President Kenny first issued an executive order in 1961 on contracting, hiring, racial preferences. That's what it referred to. And then Lyndon Johnson followed the civil rights laws by doing the same for all people. He, he introduced the idea. So this goes back to 1961 and 1965 or 66. America wasn't having a racial reckoning. It was having its first attempt to rectify the very least, which was eliminating Jim Crow and getting rid of of egregious laws, which in public accommodations and elsewhere, there was no sense of, oh, there's systemic baked in racism. So we really need to address it. Yeah, it was there. I don't want to say it wasn't addressed. Affirmative action was thought of really as a Band-Aid approach. Okay, well, now we can put racial preferences in place and then we'll help solve that. But now we're at a place where we realize that 60 plus years after Jim, Jim Crow, give or take, we, there's still so much inequity. There's all this, 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 there are these wealth gaps and there's all of the, the sordid consequences of redlining and creating neighborhoods that excluded black people, generational poverty because of all the opportunities that didn't come and all the things that yes, affirmative action helped to rectify in some instances did, but at what cost at the cost in this way of discriminating against Asian Americans. Because you start pitting groups against each other. Well, Asian Americans have suffered discrimination, but yet they're overrepresented in missions. So we have to do something about that. Therefore, we have to take less of them is what Harvard was essentially doing and why they lost. Why the court said you can't do that just because other groups are by numbers underrepresented. Dating from the first affirmative action case, this goes back to 1978, a famous case, University of California versus Baki. Alan Bakke sued the University of California Medical School at Davis because of they had, had quotas. They had actual numerical quotas which set aside a certain amount of spaces of place, a certain amount of numbers whereby black students could be admitted. Okay. And it was supposed to be like some kind of benevolent discrimination. But turns out that. It wasn't benevolent. He sued, and that ended the idea that you can actually bean count. You can't say overtly, we need to admit 25% Asian, 30% black, 10% Hispanic. You cannot do that. And let me say this. I am somebody who actually believes we should have a serious conversation about restitution and reparations in this country. We do. I don't know what form it should take. 
But I do think affirmative action impedes that discussion. I think getting rid of it and going out there and saying, hey, there's new opportunities, new ways to talk about how do we redress wrongs would be better than simply saying we're going to discriminate against one group while favoring the other. And no, it's not just white people getting favored. In this case, it was it was Africa, um, Asian Americans getting disadvantaged. There's no doubt we have we have a problem. America's original sin is race. But we have to find a way to resolve this issue. And let me add, because I know I'm going to get called out on it, and I should have said it earlier, but I'm going to say it now. Yeah, goodbye legacy admissions. Yeah, white kids of generational privilege have had tons of uh, benefits by virtue of their color of their skin and by their parents having gone to Ivy League schools. Well, we shouldn't have that either. Merit may seem fanciful or even impossible in the real world. The idea that somehow we live in that kind of world. And I agree with Justice Jackson when she said that there's kind of a let them eat cake obliviousness to the majority's opinion. But nonetheless, there was real harm done to Asian Americans in losing out opportunities for colleges, both at Harvard and University of North Carolina, for which they were qualified. And Nobody would ever say that Asian Americans have no trajectory of discrimination or oppression in America. It becomes an issue of a, a topic I'm going to address um, very soon, um, or I, I'm going to address overall on this program, but I'm going to talk about it, is who's more oppressed? The Oppression Olympics. Which group gets it? Who gets the leg up? Who doesn't? And that's where we've come to with identity politics. I think affirmative action conceived in noble intentions a long time ago has fallen victim to the worst of identity politics. And I think it's difficult because it's complicated. And I appreciate the dissents of three justices whom I respect. But I also don't think that everybody who has an issue with race-based affirmative action is a bad faith actor. I also don't think everybody who who believes that is somehow an enemy of racial progress. I think there might be other ways. Um, and so I join um, this court, the 6-3 decision, and I affirm their decision to do away with this because I think for all of its benefits, it's inherently flawed, and I do think it violates um, the spirit of what we're trying to work toward, which is equality for all. And I think there's a better way. And let's all work on finding that better way together. Folks, I hope I gave you a nuanced take. Um, that's why I'm a dirty moderate. Um, and that's what makes uh, our politics so hard these days is finding a voice, uh, you know, peeking my head above the parapet of I hope moderation and nuance to explain um, how complicated and complex and uh, how much is required to really think about the issues which bedevil our nation, but which must be discussed. So anyway, happy 4th of July. I do believe this experiment called democracy is worth fighting for, and you know we fight for it here. That's what we do. That is our purpose, and I hope uh, all of you continue to take this journey with us. Thank you for those who have made us um, formidable in this space. Um, I wish you all well. Don't miss me on TikTok at Dirty Moderate Nation. Um, enjoy this uh, this holiday weekend, but you're going to be hearing a lot more from us soon. In the meantime, happy Independence Day. Stay dirty, stay moderate, and stay safe.